Good morning. I hope you all had a good night's rest. You all look real nice and Sabbath-like. <laughs> Sabbath is beautiful, isn't it? Amen. You know, I, I really look forward to the Sabbath, even though Sabbath is the day I work the hardest. You know, the priests, they worked harder on Sabbath than any other day. Actually, the number of sacrifices were doubled. But uh, I just love going to church and meeting with my members and just enjoying a change of pace. And so I pray that this day will be a phenomenal blessing for all of us. Before we begin our study this morning, which is a continuation of, as you can tell, the theme, Our High Calling, we do want to ask the Lord's blessing, and so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us life this day. Thank you for the privilege of being your children. Thank you, Father, for the awesome privilege of being here gathered together with fellow believers. Believers who wish to be involved in the final thrust of your work in these last days of history. Father, as we open your word, we ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We ask that the Spirit who inspired Scripture will come now to explain it to us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here, and we thank you because you have heard our prayer, because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Many of the parables of Jesus actually have two dimensions. One is what I call a local dimension, and the other is a cosmic dimension. Perhaps I might mention uh, one of those parables, the parable of the lost sheep. Now usually when we uh, study the parable of the lost sheep, Usually when we study the parable of the lost sheep, you know, we say when somebody goes astray from the church, we should go and we should rescue that individual. We should do everything possible to bring that individual back to the church. But really this parable has a much broader dimension. And Ellen White actually caught this in Desire of Ages and Christ's Object Lessons. She says that the 99 that are safe in the fold represent the worlds that never sinned. The one sheep that goes astray represents this world that fell into sin. The shepherd leaving those who are safe in the fold to come and rescue the sheep that was lost represents the fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth to give his life to rescue this world and put this world back in the fold. And then, the return of the shepherd with the sheep on his shoulder and the great celebration in the home represents the great celebration of all of heaven when this world has been restored to what it was originally. Amen. That's the cosmic dimension of the story of the lost sheep. And probably, I would say, the primary dimension of the parable of the lost sheep. And many of the parables of Christ have this twofold dimension. You know, the local, we're supposed to go rescue the sheep that are lost as good under-shepherds, 
But Jesus, according to the Bible, is truly the Good Shepherd. Now this morning we're going to follow up on what we studied yesterday. Yesterday we noticed that the highest calling, the highest goal that Jesus has established for us is God-likeness. And we notice that the only way that we can really know what God is like is by beholding Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, and therefore is able to reveal fully and completely what God is like. I'd like to read a statement that I'm sure we're all acquainted with. It comes from the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. And uh, this is an awesome statement. Some people have struggled with it, but uh, I believe that what Ellen White wrote, she wrote under inspiration. And I believe that this is uh, an accurate description of God's ideal for us. This is what she says. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people. When what? When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. And usually we stop there. She continues saying, it is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, now she explains how it can be hastened. Were all who professed his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced, when we are perfectly godlike, we could say, then Jesus will come to claim us as his own. Of course, this leads us to ask the question, what is perfection? We need to know what perfection is in order to know how the character of Christ can be perfectly reproduced. Usually when we think of perfection, we look at what I call the negative side of perfection. Usually we say, perfection means that we don't sin anymore. Now, I must admit that this is one side of perfection. Stopping our sinning. Not doing evil. That's one side of perfection. But I think that perhaps we've missed the other side of perfection. Because perfection really has two sides. It's like a coin. You can't have a coin with just one side. The coin has two sides. And so it is that perfection has two sides. One side is to stop sinning. The other side is to do good as Jesus did. In other words, ceasing to do evil is one side and doing good is the other side. And sometimes I think that we focus so much as Adventists on the side of not sinning anymore that we forget the other side of perfection which is doing what Jesus did. You see, Jesus didn't sin. But Jesus also performed works of mercy and works of love. Amen. 
Now let's take a look at this idea as we find it in Luke chapter 10. We're going to take a look at another one of the parables of Jesus which we've studied many times before to see if we can discern this twofold side of perfection. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 and we'll just move through this parable. It's the story of the Good Samaritan which is really a true story but it is also a parable. And usually when we study this parable we, uh, we say that we should be Good Samaritans. Now uh, there's that application. You know we should be Good Samaritans because at the end of the parable Jesus says you go and do likewise. But there's something deeper and broader in this parable than the idea that we should be Good Samaritans. Because actually the Good Samaritan is a symbol of Jesus Christ. Now let's go through this story beginning uh, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And remember we're discussing perfection. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced. Does that mean when we stop sinning the way Jesus never sinned? Is that it? Or does it mean doing the good that Jesus did? Notice verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer, when it says lawyer, it's talking about an expert in the law of Moses. This is a religious lawyer. It's not uh, one of those lawyers that, uh, that we know of these days. So it says, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now can you think of another story in scripture where another person asked the same question? The rich young ruler. So let's suspend our study for a moment and go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and let's begin at verse 16. Matthew 19 verse 16. Now behold one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What kind of life does this young man want? He wants eternal life. That's important. He says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And that's been misunderstood. Some people say that Jesus was not claiming to be God. What Jesus is saying is, okay, you call me good. Why do you call me good? Do you call me good because you think I'm a simple man or do you call me good because you think I'm God? And so he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, which life? Eternal. Eternal life, that's important. If you want to enter life, that's not this mortal life, but if you want to enter eternal life, what does Jesus continue saying? Keep the commandments. <laughs> isn't that legalism? <laughs> Keep the commandments. That's a good Seventh-day Adventist answer, isn't it? <laughs> Say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, keep the commandments. Do you think this young man would have made a good elder in the Adventist church? Do you think he would have made a good physician? <laughs> Let's come a little closer to home. <laughs> I think so. Let's continue reading. He says, this is too good to be true, too good to be true. So he wants to make sure he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice that Jesus quoted the last six commandments, but he took out one and in its place, he put in another one. He took in the, out the commandment that says, thou shalt not covet, and he put the positive side of that commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when the young man hears this, notice in verse 20, then the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Does that sound like I'm rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing? So he says, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now listen to the answer of Jesus. Remember that Jesus says, if you would enter life, right? If you want to enter life, which life? Eternal, Eternal life. Now notice another if. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect. perfect. Must we be perfect to have an eternal life? Yes, because Jesus says, if you want to enter life, and then he says, if you would be what? Perfect. Wow. Is Jesus talking here about not performing evil anymore? Ah, Jesus is discussing the other side of perfection. If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What was lacking with this young man? What was lacking was not the negative side of perfection, ceasing to do evil. What was missing was doing good. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure with me. And notice what the response was. In verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is perfection according to this definition? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, what is the definition that Jesus gives of perfection? It's not in this context ceasing to do evil, but what? Selling what you have and giving to the poor. Doing good the other side of perfection. Now let's go back to the story of the Good Samaritan and see if the story of the Good Samaritan is in harmony with what we just looked at. Once again, verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Jesus says, You tell me. You're the expert. <laughs> You're the lawyer. You claim to be able to read correctly the writings of Moses. You tell me what the answer is. Verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Was his answer correct? Is it the same answer basically that was given by Jesus to the rich young ruler. Yes, you must what? You must love. Now let's continue. Notice verse 28. This young man had good theory. <laughs> he knew how to give the right answer, but he wasn't doing it. 
Because it says in verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will what? Live. What kind of life? Eternal life. Is it necessary to do something to have eternal life? See, usually we think when we stop sinning, we'll be perfect and we'll have eternal life. But here, Jesus is saying, you have to do something to have eternal life. Not only ceasing to do evil, but performing good. Two sides of perfection. And by the way, when we're performing good, evil takes care of itself. Amen. Now, verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Trying to change the su subject, shift the conversation. So he says, who is my neighbor? And now Jesus is going to explain what he means by doing good to have life. The story of the Good Samaritan. Incidentally, this is a true story that Jesus told. Ellen White says, in fact, that, that the Levite and the priest in the story were present when he told the story. Can you imagine their surprise? when Jesus told this story and they had been there. Verse 30. Remember that the Samaritan in this story is Christ. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And by the way, when it says that, they, that he went down, that's literal. <laughs> if you've been in Israel and you've gone on that torturous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's kind of winds like a snake. Down, down, down. So it says a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very desolate road. All you see here and there are a few Bedouins with a few sheep or goats. And it says he fell among thieves. Now this man who fell among thieves represents this world. Who is the thief of thieves? The devil. According to John chapter 10 and verse 10, the enemy doesn't come but to steal. And so in this story, the thieves represent the devil and his angels. The man who falls into the hands of thieves represents this world. Now notice, not only does it say he fell among thieves, but it also says, who stripped him of his clothing. What does clothing represent in Scripture? Clothing represents righteousness. Did the devil strip the human race of its righteousness? Absolutely. Did the devil come to steal the position that the human race had? Absolutely. And wounded him. Is the human race wounded? Absolutely. And departed, departed leaving him half dead. Could this individual save himself? No way. He needed someone to come from outside to save him. Or else he would have perished. But there's good news. Verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest, that's the pastor. Talking about myself now. <laughs> now by chance a certain priest came down that road 
And what, now notice, he comes down the road, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So he doesn't even come close. Pastor's the worst of them. Because it says, he, he's coming by, he sees him, and he passes by on the other side. Now, there's someone else. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. I like to think that the Levites probably represent the church members. <laughs> and so it says, likewise a Levite. When he arrived at the place, now he's a little better because it says he came and looked. <laughs> he didn't touch him, but he came and looked and passed by on the other side. You know, I like to imagine what these individuals must have thought, the priest and the Levite. Maybe they said, I'm late for an appointment up there in Jerusalem at the temple. Hey, if I stop and I help this guy, the thieves might still be around. That's true. That was true. Yeah. Or, or, you know, my garments are so beautiful and clean. Man, I don't want to get full of blood. Or perhaps they said, hey, if I help this guy and he dies in my arms, I'll have a lawsuit on my hands. The point is that they did not help this man. Do you think the priest tithed? Do you think the priest was a tithe payer? Do you think he was a Sabbath keeper? Do you think he ate shrimp? <laughs> Morally, on the side of not sinning, he appeared to be very righteous. Where was the problem? With doing good. Now notice verse 33. But a certain Samaritan from a different country, a certain Samaritan hated by the Jews uh, and, and vice versa. He comes by, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Amen. Did he have to have compassion on him? No. Would helping this man be any personal benefit to the Samaritan? No. So why did he help him? Simply because he had a compassionate heart. So it says he had compassion on him. So he went, now notice he not only is coming by, he comes close, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. What does oil represent in scripture? The Holy Spirit. What does wine represent? The blood of Christ. What were the two healing agents? The Holy Spirit and what? and Christ's blood. And so it says here, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, because he still had a recuperation period, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The inn is the hospital. It represents the church. Where does Jesus put people that are in the process of healing in contact with? in contact with the church. They accept Christ, they accept the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but there's still a recuperation period. So Jesus places people in contact with the church. 
takes them to the inn, so to speak. But I want you to notice that the Samaritan has to leave. And he's going to have a second coming. Verse 35. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. Has Jesus given resources to the church to care for those who are hurting, who are in pain, who are in the process of recuperation? The Bible says that he gave gifts to the members of the church to bring healing to those who are hurting, to those who are in pain. And so the Samaritan gives resources to the innkeeper. He gives resources to the church, so to speak, to help in the process of healing. And of course, the innkeeper might, might have thought, oh, yeah, okay, and who's going to pay? Now notice, once again, verse 35, the last part of the verse, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, now listen, when I come again, I will repay. Does that ring a bell? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And the word repay, what does Jesus bring when he comes? Lo, I come quickly, and what? And my reward is with me to give everyone their reward because they didn't sin. That too. But that's not the emphasis here. To give everyone according to his work. Because your faith is shown by your works. See, that was a problem that, the problem that James was dealing with. See, Paul was dealing with one problem and James with another. Some people think that Paul and James contradict one another because the Apostle Paul says, we're justified by faith without works of law. And James says, was not Abraham, was not Rahab, weren't they justified by works? So how do you reconcile those two? Well, they're looking at two, two different problems. The Apostle Paul is looking at the problem of people who have, who have faith but have no works. Or have works rather and have no faith. Whereas James is looking at people who claim to have faith but don't have works. So they're looking at two enemies of the gospel. A faithless works and workless faith. In other words, Paul is saying how we're saved and James is saying how a saved person should live. There's no contradiction when you really look at it carefully. There's two sides of perfection. That's why we are justified by grace through faith, but we shall be judged by works, because works show if faith was real. So you have a second coming of the Samaritan. And then Jesus asked the question, verse 36, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And now Jesus gives a second application to the parable. Now he's going to say, as the Samaritan did, you do it. 
See, the parable of the Samaritan has a twofold application. It applies on a cosmic level to Christ and on a local level to us. We are to reproduce the character of the Samaritan, if you please. And so, and he said, he, he who showed mercy on him. Don't forget that word, mercy. Mercy on him. We're going to come back to it in a minute. So who is it here that was the neighbor? And the question is, who will have everlasting what? Life. Does it have something to do with what we do? Absolutely. Then Jesus said to him, go and what? And do likewise. But the story doesn't end here. Are you understanding the other side of perfection? You know, there's no better profession in the world to do good to people than being a physician or a dentist. You know, dentists have a captive audience. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, my son just recently had a terrible toothache, and you know, he's, he's scared of going to the dentist. And I say to him, how a big kid like you is scared of going to the dentist? There's no pain. It's just the thought of hearing the drills. So finally, after several weeks of, of pain, you know, he went to the dentist. And he got the problem fixed. And now he's pain free. Do you think he appreciates the dentist? Oh, absolutely. There's no one who can do more immediate good. I mean, physical good than a physician or a dentist. And then that opens the way to do spiritual good. Isn't that the reason why this is the right arm of the message? To open the door? Now go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And let's begin uh, at verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. And we'll move quickly through this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Is that uh, an easy standard to live by? That's what most people live by. You hit me, I hit you back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, that's what you've heard. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, if somebody hits you on one cheek, you say, please hit me on the other. Whew. The religion of Jesus is difficult <laughs> when you look at it from this perspective. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, take him to court and sue him. No. It says, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, you tell him, can we do this round trip? <laughs> go with him too. Amen. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Notice he doesn't say, don't hate your enemies. He says, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice that the religion of Jesus is positive. He says, love, do good, pray. Incidentally, he's not asking, he's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do first. Verse 45. How, how many of us believe that we're sons and daughters of God? Raise your hand. You believe you're a son and daughter of God? What is the condition? Now notice. He's just said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What is the condition for being sons of our Father in heaven? Love, bless, do good, pray. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then God, notice, what, what would it be like if God was like us? God says, now, there's a farmer over here. He's a good Seventh-day Adventist. I'm going to give him sunshine and rain. This farmer over here who's an atheist, tough luck. No rain and no sunshine. That's not the way that God operates. Because it says he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do you love your relatives? And your friends? Of course. Jesus says, big deal. The big deal would be for you to love your enemies. So he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do you think atheists love their mothers? Of course. Verse 47, And if you greet, greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? And then comes the conclusion which has greatly been misused. You know, this text has been used to say that we need to stop sinning. And I think in principle, you know, it might deal with that, but the context indicates that this is dealing with the positive side of perfection, the doing side. Notice the conclusion. Therefore, you shall be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is perfection according to this passage? Is it ceasing to do evil or is it doing good? It is praying, loving, doing good. Especially those who hate us, those who spite us. Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let's ask if we're on the right track here. Let's go to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. Go with me to Luke chapter 6. And let's take a look at the parallel passage. You know, some people say, you know, uh, the gospel writers actually uh, contradict themselves. Because, you know, in one gospel it says that Jesus said one thing, and in another gospel it says that he said something different. And it's the same occasion. But let me explain what's happening here. 
One gospel writer is actually writing what Jesus said, and the other gospel writer is interpreting what Jesus said. Now, what was the interpretation given by Luke of what Jesus said? Luke chapter 6. And let's begin our reading at verse 27. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Is this the same passage we read in Matthew? Absolutely. Verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to, do to you, you also do to them. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Is that the same passage that we noticed in Matthew? Same ideas. But now notice the conclusion. Remember in the story of the Good Samaritan? Who was neighbor? The one who was what? Merciful. Now notice this, verse 36. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. What is perfection? In Matthew it says, be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here it says, be merciful, as your Father is merciful. Perfection, the ignored side of perfection, is the merciful side. Are you understanding me? In other words, is it perhaps true that us Adventists are not guilty of the son of commission, but we are guilty of the son of omission? Amen. You see, the spirit of prophecy says that we will be judged not only by the evil that we did, but by the good which we did not do. And as dentists and as physicians and as ministers, we must have both sides of perfection because just ceasing to do evil is going to put us in the category of the scribes and Pharisees that everybody hated. But they love Jesus. Because Jesus not only quit sinning, or never sinned, rather, but Jesus did good. And people loved him. Now there's one more passage in Scripture that I would like us to take a look at. I'm not going to go to it, but you might want to write it down if you're taking notes. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. It's the great judgment day. Jesus is sitting on his white throne. By the way, this is taking place after the millennium. We won't go into that right now, but it's, it's really a scene that's taking place after the millennium. All nations are gathered before Christ. And Jesus begins to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep represent the righteous and the goats represent the wicked. And first of all, Jesus takes the righteous 
sheep and he places them on his right side and he says, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says, because you returned your tithe and you didn't break the Sabbath and you never tasted any lobster or shrimp or pork. Now don't get me wrong. I don't think we should eat shrimp or lobster or pork. The Bible forbids it. That has to do with one dimension, but we're dealing with a different dimension which rarely do we ever touch upon. Jesus doesn't say that. What does he say? Come in and inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world for you. For I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a foreigner, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And of course, these people, they did this naturally. And so they say, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When were you in prison? When were you a foreigner? We don't remember you being here. After all, we lived in the United States in the year 2011. You went to heaven in the year 31. And Jesus says, in that you have done it unto one of these, at least my brethren, you have done it unto me. Whenever we live the life of Christ with others, we're doing it to Christ. And then Jesus turns to the goats. And he says, you folks are going to go to hellfire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because unfortunately, you folks, you didn't keep the Sabbath, sorry. You ate what you weren't supposed to eat, and you didn't pay all your tithe, did you? <laughs> Don't get me wrong, we need to keep the Sabbath, we need to tithe. But do you know why we keep the Sabbath? What did Jesus do on Sabbath? It was his special day for doing what we're talking about. Why do we tithe? So that there's funds that we can use to proclaim the gospel. Why do we practice health reform? So we can be healthy to minister to others. All of these things we do are functional. They are not an end in themselves. So Jesus says to the goats, I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. This is what I call the sin of neglect. Do you understand what God-likeness is like? Oh, God never sins. Yes, that's God-likeness. But there's much more to God-likeness than not doing evil. <coughs> I was hungry, you didn't give me to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was a foreigner, you did not take me in. And now it's the time of the goats to complain. And the goats say, but Lord, we lived in the United States in the year 2011. 
You went to heaven in the year 31. How could we have ministered unto you? And Jesus says, in that you have not done it, unto one of these at least my brethren, you have not done it unto me. It's the sin of omission. Are you following me? What does Ellen White mean when she says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people? If you read the rest of that statement, let's read it again in the light of what we've studied. She says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian. Now she's going to explain what it means to perfectly reflect the character of Christ. She says, it is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess His name, bearing fruit to His glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. She's talking about preaching and working. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us as ministers, as medical personnel, to not only give an image that Adventism is about ceasing to do evil, keeping certain rules and regulations. But Adventism is about revealing to the world the character of love of Jesus Christ. That is our high calling. Godlikeness. In the sense of not doing evil, but also in the sense of revealing the character of God such as has never been seen in the history of the world. And Ellen White says that this perspective of God will bring conviction and will transform hearts. And that's what we're all about. That's why we're in this. To reveal the character of Christ to the world. Are you tired of living in this world? I don't know if you are, but I am. You say, this is a beautiful resort. Compared to heaven, with all due respect to Crown Plaza Resort. <laughs> Heaven is going to be a much nicer place where all of God's family will be together. I look forward to that day. Do you look forward to that day? You know, this is a little sampling of God's people meeting together on the Sabbath. Can you imagine what it will be like for all of God's people from every period of history? meeting on the sea of glass to sing praises to the Lord. Folks, let's keep our focus. Our focus on the important things. As the little song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And what happens when we do that? The things on earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, We've studied this morning about Jesus, your beloved Son. Oh, Father, thank you for revealing yourself in Christ. Thank you for showing us what you're really like, 
in a world where everything appears to bear the image of Satan, it's refreshing to know what you are really like. I ask, Father, that you will help us each day to spend time with Jesus in prayer, in Bible study, reaching out to others. And in this way, each day, we might draw closer to Jesus and reflect, reflect more fully his character to the world. We thank you, Father, for having been with us this morning, and we thank you for hearing our prayer and blessing our activities this day, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.